We're going to keep going through the book of Acts this morning. If you guys have your Bibles or if you just, we have a screen too. Turn to Acts chapter 7. We're going to talk about, if you guys have ever read it, the stoning of Stephen. If you guys have ever read that story. Um, what's interesting about what we're about to look at, I was in, my wife and I were with Youth with a Mission um, training to go into China, into Tibet. And we were at a discipleship training school in Harpenden, England, which was just outside of London. And it was during, I remember it was during a Thursday morning prayer meeting and we were just getting, gathered together as a group. We were praying. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God literally hit me like a freight train. I fell on the ground, and I couldn't get up if I wanted to. It was the tangible. It was, the, it was like God's power was physical. And it felt like fire. It felt like electricity rushing up and down my body. And if you read in the Old Testament, sometimes when the prophets would prophesy, stuff like this would happen to them, right? When Saul was prophesying, it said he fell on the ground first. When Daniel was about to prophesy it, and get a word, it said that he trembled and could hardly stand up. So you find this in Scripture. So I'm on the ground, and all of a sudden, a prophecy comes. And I, and, and I'm, you know, I can be loud anyways. And I was super loud. I almost like screamed it out. And I said um, that the Jesus, and I prophesied to him, I said, the Lord says that we are to follow in his footsteps. And if he went to a cross, then we will, in following his footsteps, we will end up at our own crosses. And I said, the Lord says to you as a group, you must prepare for the days to come which could include mockery, which could include beatings, and which could include martyrdom. And I said, the Lord says, you must prepare for the persecution that's coming. And this has, there was no, dis, it was so out of context, right? Nobody was talking or thinking about this at all. So after I prophesied, I'm still on the floor. I can still feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, I get a second word. It wasn't for the group. It was for me. And the Lord said, Sam, I have not called you just to be a missionary or an evangelist or a minister. I have primarily called you to be a cross bearer. A cross bearer. And then the Lord said, I don't, Sam, I don't want you to spend your life preparing for ministry. I want you to spend your life preparing for obedience, even to the point of death. And in Philippians, remember, it says Jesus was obedient even to the point of death. So the prayer meeting ended. I was really shaken up by the whole thing because I realized, oh, my gosh, this wasn't just my thoughts. God was speaking to me. And later that afternoon, I had, I had found in an old bookstore in London a copy of a book called When Iron Gates Yield by, in, from the 1950s published by a man named Jeffrey Bullock that was a missionary in Tibet in the 1950s when the Chinese communists came in and conquered that nation. And 
I was reading, I, I'd been reading through the book that afternoon. I was reading this chapter, and in this chapter, the Chinese communists came in and they arrested him. They threw him into a really brutal, brutal prison. And he experienced um, psychological and physical torture. And I'm reading this, and I'm still thinking about what I prophesied earlier that day, and I wrote this down on, a piece, on, on my paper, and then I got to this quote. Listen to this quote. This is directly from the book. Thousands of miles away from this tragic scene, many were sitting at ease in Zion, glad to know that they themselves are complete in Christ. As one of the saints has said, Jesus hath how many lovers of his heavenly kingdom, but few bearers of his cross. What did God just told me that morning? And when I read that, it was like it jumped off the page. I realized, oh my gosh, God is confirming his prophetic word from a book that I'm reading for that was published in the 1950s. He hath many desirous of consolation, but few of tribulation. He findeth many companions of his table, but few of his abstinence. All desire to rejoice with him. Few are willing to endure anything for him or with him. Many follow Jesus unto the breaking of bread, but few to the drinking of his passion. And that word passion is to describe the, the whole scene of his trial, his beatings, and his crucifixion. I remember in 1996, I was at a Vineyard Leadership meeting when, when, um, when Carl Tuttle was the pastor of the Anaheim Vineyard. And it was somewhere up in Central California. And they had worship time. And it was one of those leadership meetings for all the people in leadership at the Anaheim Vineyard. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God came on me. And, and, and those, um, especially under John Wimber, it was really common after worship for people to give prophecies which we're going to see that more and more even in our own church. And uh, I was complaining to Brooke a couple weeks ago, nobody ever gets prophecies after worship at our church. And then last week, right after worship, someone stood up and gave a prophecy. I mean, literally like the day or two before I was complaining to Brooke about that. So I think, okay, God, it's, you know, you're going to do it. So anyways, I, I, I got a prophecy after worship, Vineyard Anaheim Leadership Meeting. And the prophecy was, you are all preparing for revival, but the Lord also says prepare for persecution. And I remember in that prophecy, I said, if I went to the cross and died and you're following me, where do you think you're going to go? And anyways, when I finished my, literally, the moment I finished my prophecy, the fire alarm went off. I mean, the second I was done. And they kept going on and on and on, and people are running around and all this, you know, all the hotel staff and everybody, and finally they shut it off. And Carl got up there and went a completely different direction. But I'm telling you, I knew, I just knew that God was trying to get their attention. And if they didn't hear the word, maybe the alarm would help. So we're going to look at this. Let's, let's read some passages. This is Stephen speaking to a bunch of Jews that had arrested him and were enraged at him. 
And he said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You did not receive the law as delivered, or you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. By the way, that gnash their teeth is the phrase that Jesus constantly used for people in hell. And, and it's not a phrase of just being in pain. It's a phrase that being angry to the point of, there, it, there's almost nothing more you could do physically than gnash your teeth. You're so angry, right? But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears uh, there are, in, in the Jewish commentaries, in the Talmud, it talks about if you hear blasphemy, stop your ears so that the words don't even go into your mind. And rushed together at him, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's the Apostle Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, they really didn't like that. That's a prayer, right? He didn't say God. He didn't say Father. He prayed to whom? That's by praying to Jesus. That's just shouting to everybody, he's God. He is God, the God God, right? And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That means he died. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. When Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, you understand it took persecution for that church to fulfill that prophecy. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. How many of you guys have read this story of Stephen before? What jumps out at you? What strikes you? And just the verses we looked at, what do you guys notice? Yeah. Yeah. Notice that. His willingness to go to God. The pro- we want, we want, in hardship, often, that's when people get mad and turn away from God, right? But notice that. The stones are actually hitting him, and he goes to God. To, if you're going to prepare for persecution to come, the way you do that is learn to respond rightly in hardships now. Anything, anything else jump out at you guys? Yeah, Katie. For them. For them. And it's an especial indictment when you look at like the book of Maccabees and some of the other Jewish literature. Is there, it was actually a sign of holiness and saintliness that as you're being killed to pronounce judgment on them. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
What else jumps out at you guys? Anything else strikes you? Yeah. 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 I'm not sure what the title would be, you know. Yeah. You know, he would basically had some leadership role, but he was really out there preaching the gospel and then got angered by the authorities. Yeah. Yeah. What else do you notice? Yeah, notice that. I'm glad you noticed that. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to pick this apart a little bit, and uh, I want to first thing I want to do is what Cliff mentioned, is who is Stephen? Now, to understand Stephen, you've got to go back to the previous chapter in Acts 6, and it says, And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And he says, we're meeting all the physical needs, but we're so busy doing that, we're not meeting their spiritual needs. Therefore, brothers, pick from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. That's our introduction to Stephen. The apostles weren't saying it's wrong to serve food to the poor. They're saying it's wrong to neglect prayer and the word. That's the problem. So they chose seven men to oversee the food distribution. One of them was Stephen. But it's interesting. The people didn't, it didn't say they chose Stephen because he was a good administrator, because he was a good facilitator. They chose Stephen because he was what? Full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? And Stephen didn't just serve food. He performed miracles. He preached the word. And what you find in the book of Acts, every position in the church, every role in the church, in the job description was preach the word and do miracles. Did you guys hear me? Every person in the church. And Stephen, full of grace, Acts 6, 8, and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. But Stephen, you're just a food distribution guy. You're, supposed to, you're not supposed to multiply the food. You're just supposed to serve it. Right? Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. You find this all over the book of Acts. And, and the, God, the wisdom of the gospel, when I say argument, I don't mean yelling at somebody. It's, it's giving reasons for what you believe, right? The wisdom of the gospel is based off of arguments that are true. They're rational. They're logical. You have no idea how many times Paul appeals to the logic of what he is saying. And because of that, you can't withstand it. You can't dispute it. 
So what happens in an argument when someone can't answer, they don't have objections that are good objections. They can't answer it. You know, what do they do then? They get angry. They, they, they accuse. Yeah. Saul was, yeah. Saul was, it doesn't say Saul was having good dis- arguments to see who's right. They, they, they often, people and mobs resort to violence, which they did with Stephen. They seized him. And they resort to lies, false accusations. The arguments for intelligent design are irrefutable. So what, what, what does a scientist do when he's faced with somebody with a good intelligent design argument? Oh, you're a creationist. He calls them names. Instead of answering the argument. You find this everywhere. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So they arrest Stephen and they accuse Stephen of speaking against Moses and against the temple. Well, Moses and the law and the temple were literally the two foundation stones of Judaism at the time. Everything in Judaism is around Moses' law and the temple, right? So to speak against Moses and the temple in their mind was blasphemy. They're, you're, they're saying Stephen is speaking against God because God sent Moses and he's speaking against God because God dwells in the temple, right? And in their view, they take it a little bit farther in verse 14. They're saying, yeah, Jesus is actually just doing the same blasphemy Jesus did. He's just repeating Jesus because Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple. Jesus said he was going to change Moses' laws. You see that? So how did Stephen respond? A lot of times these sermons and acts are the things that most people overlook. They get to the, there's these long sermons, right? And so you read what happened, then you got this long sermon, you kind of skip over that, and then you go back to what happened. But in Acts 7, 2 to 53, Stephen gives a long, long response. You know what it is? It's a history lesson in, of, of history of Israel from the scriptures from the Old Testament. But why? Stephen is not ignoring the two false accusations. He's answering them. He's giving a response. He's doing what they wouldn't do. But it's interesting. People read, read Stephen's message. He doesn't preach Christ. He doesn't mention Jesus doing this or this or this. What he does is he discusses Israel's history, 
Why? By looking at their history, Stephen is trying to show them their need for Christ. The problems in their history show them their need for Christ. So what does Stephen do in the history lesson? He discusses how they rejected and dismissed those sent by God, including Moses himself. And then the second part of his history lesson is he discusses how they've completely disregarded and diminished the presence of God because of their misunderstanding of the temple. Their misunderstanding of the temple. And what Stephen then says is those two errors are at the root. Because of those two errors, that's why they're rejecting Christ. And, the, and, and then he takes it a little bit farther. It's because of their rejection of Christ that they hate him. You guys with me so far? So I'm going to quickly take you through his, what Stephen's two responses. Because you're not going to understand the stoning if you don't understand Stephen's, what he said. So in the first part of his speech, he rehearses the histories of Abraham, and then he talks about Joseph, and then he talks about Moses. Why Abraham? Why does he start with Abraham? He says, Abraham got all these promises from God, and God said, I'm going to fulfill them through your kids, your descendants. And then one of Abraham's descendants was a guy named Joseph. And Joseph was chosen by God to, to save Israel when there was going to be a worldwide famine. But what is Stephen's point? The other 11 brothers, remember these are the 12 tribes of Israel, is from them? Did they accept Joseph or reject Joseph? They rejected the guy God picked to save them. Stephen says it, Acts 7, 9 to 10. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him to Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions. And then God raises up Joseph to deliver Israel. But when they show up, the, the 11 and the, and the Jews at the time, when they showed up to visit Joseph, did they recognize him or not recognize him? They didn't recognize him. Not until the second time when he, showed, when he revealed himself. It says in Acts 7, 12 to 13, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So Stephen's point was, a great deliverer, Stephen says, your forefathers didn't recognize him and rejected him. He says, now let me go to Moses. Moses was also raised up to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. In their first encounter with Moses, they did not recognize who he was and they rejected him as their leader. Here's what Stephen says. And seeing one of them being wronged, he, Moses, defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would not understand 
that God was giving them salvation by his hand, or he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who is wronging his neighbor thrust him aside. That's Moses. Saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? They didn't recognize that Moses was called to save them, and they rejected Moses' leadership. Right? Later on, they did it again. The history of Israel and Moses was a history of them rejecting Moses. This Moses, whom they rejected, notice how Stephen emphasizes that? Saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? Which is very similar to statements made to Jesus, by the way, in the Gospel of Luke. This man sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Not only, and here's Stephen's point, not only did they reject Moses, but in the middle of that rejection, Moses said something. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Moses prophesied that. And what's Stephen's point? If they rejected Moses again and again, what are they going to do when God raises up another Savior who's like Moses? What would they do to him? Jesus was a fulfillment of that prophecy. And, and what is Stephen's point in all of these historical examples? He takes the history lesson, and then in Acts 7, 51 to 53, he applies it to his audience. And what does he say? Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Isaiah, they sawed him in two. Jeremiah, they threw him into a pit and a cistern. Elijah, they kept hunting him down, trying to kill him. And the list goes on. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So what is Stephen saying? He's saying, you guys are exactly like your parents, who were like their parents, who were like their parents. You haven't changed. Their forefathers rejected the people that God sent to save them, like Joseph and Moses. And he says, now you've rejected Jesus, and Joseph and Moses just foreshadowed him. Now, interesting, because what did they accuse Stephen of? Blasphemy for changing the law of Moses. Do you understand how Stephen, in his response, turned the tables on them? Stephen is saying, you are focused on the law of Moses when your people rejected the person of Moses. Do you see what he's saying? He's trying to get them to see that. But there was one more accusation against Stephen. It wasn't just that he was blaspheming God, they said, by changing the law, but by rejecting the temple. 
They said, Jesus said he's going to destroy the temple. So Stephen's like, I'm going to respond to that. So what he does in his sermon is Stephen keeps talking about the presence of God. Not his omnipresence where he's everywhere, but his manifest presence where he shows himself. And his point is that God's glory and presence have never been limited to some tabernacle or temple. His glory and presence have never been confined to a building. That was never the case. He didn't say that God's presence wasn't in the building. He said he was never confined to that building. So Stephen starts his speech by talking about Abraham. And he says, brothers and fathers, hear me. What is the first phrase he uses about God? The God of what? What's glory? That's where God shows his presence. Right? The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. That's not even in Israel. That's in Iraq somewhere. What's Stephen's point? The God of glory and his glory appeared to Abraham in some foreign land way outside of Israel. Right? And then he talks not about Abraham but about Moses. And he makes the same point. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is what? Holy ground. Where did God's glory appear to Moses? Out in the desert somewhere. Where the bushes are, right? Not in some tabernacle, not in some temple. And what's Stephen's point? Holy ground is not where the temple is. Holy ground is where God is. So what does Stephen do? He's mentioning this as he talks about Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. And then Stephen, in verses 44 to 50, directly answers the accusation that he and Jesus are against the temple. And what he says is, the problem is not the existence of the temple. The problem is the Jews' misunderstanding of the temple. And that misunderstanding was one of the things causing them to reject Jesus. You might say, well, how is that connected? Here's what he says. In the days of Moses, God's presence dwelt in a tent in the wilderness that was later transported into the land of Canaan. David even set up that tent and put like 120 musicians to sing around it. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers, so it was until the days of David. And then he talks about not Moses' tabernacle, but Solomon's temple. Acts 7, 45 to 47. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. 
But what is his point, Stevens? He says, yes, God wanted a tabernacle. Yes, God wanted a temple, but his glory and presence were never limited to a temple. They were never confined to a tabernacle because Stephen says the heavens and earth cannot contain him. How much a little man-made building in one little spot on the planet? Because what does Stephen do? He quotes Isaiah 66, 1 to 2. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Yet the what? What title does Stephen use for God? Yet the what? You notice that? Why use that title? What does the word most high mean? Nobody's higher. He's unique. And he's high. His, his sovereignty, his uniqueness. Nobody else compares, right? But what does that mean? Nobody's higher than him. Nobody's greater than him. What is the implication of being called the most high? No human main building is going to contain the most high. No part of creation is going to contain the Most High. And when you see the word Most High used as God's name, that's the point that comes with it. Look at this example. Genesis 14, 19. Blessed be Abram by God, what? Possessor of what? Heaven and earth. Psalm 47, 2. For the Lord, what? The Most High is to be feared a great king over what? Over all the earth. So what is Stephen doing? In their deception, in the deception of this Jewish audience, this mob, they were fixated, fixated on believing that Jesus was going to destroy the temple. And they couldn't get around that. But you understand how deception... Jesus, was Jesus greater than the temple? All of the glory, presence, and person of God is in this human being called Jesus. And they don't even see it. They're worried about this stone building. Do you understand? It was one, of, that's why they couldn't accept Jesus. One of the reasons. And you'll see this in churches. Churches will, movements, they fixate on one thing and it prevents them from seeing something much greater and larger. Right? So what does Stephen say to them after the history lesson? You keep rejecting God's people. You misunderstand God's presence. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. That in the Bible, 
It says that you need to be, you, you talk to people with gentleness and respect, but their definition of it is different than what we have now in our culture. Truth is much more important than politeness. Truth is much more important than ju- what would they just call tolerance. There's no help for somebody if you're going to talk about something that's not true. You can't help somebody if you're not dealing in reality. Anybody ever counsel anybody? The whole point of counseling is try to get somebody to work in reality, right? Who you re- whom you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So Stephen applies this history lesson by saying you always what? Resist whom? The Holy Spirit. But what does that mean in context? How is Stephen introduced in the story? He's a man full of faith and of what? The Holy Spirit. When he speaks to them, they couldn't withstand what? The what? The spirit with which he was speaking. His words were from the Holy Spirit. He was literally reflecting the glory of God. You have to understand, the the Jews, the temple and Moses, God's shining presence was there. So they're ready to stone Stephen for speaking against the temple of Moses. So what happens as Stephen is talking? And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw with their physical eyes that his face was like the face of an angel. He was shining. And they didn't even see it because they were fixated on the doctrines that they believed Stephen was against. Anybody ever been a Christian like that or met any Christians like that? At the end of the story, so it introduces the story by seeing Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. The end of the story, Acts 7.55, but he full of the Holy Spirit. This is the context for Stephen saying, you resist the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? The Spirit shows himself through people like Stephen. So by accusing and persecuting Stephen, they were resisting God. They were resisting the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that? Often, how do churches reject what the Lord is doing? God brings people to them, and they reject that person and have a 20 20 reasons why. But they haven't realized they've actually rejected God by doing that. What did Jesus always say? Again and again and again. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of whom? Because of whom? Him. What is he saying? John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it, who? Hated me. Before it hated you. Are you guys understanding that? Your goal is not to get the world to like you. 
Your goal is to love the world. And often the most loving thing you can do is just be honest and truthful. Because you love them, they might might actually start hating you. Not because they view you, because of Jesus. We must realize that when the world hates and persecutes us, it's not because they hate us, they hate the church. They, the world hates what Jesus claims. Have you ever read his words? They hate what Jesus stands for. They hate who he is. I have, when people cuss, I never hear them say Buddha. Oh, Buddha. Oh, Muhammad. What do they say? G.D. Jesus. Right? Right? You don't think they hate him? So the church is either going to stand with the true Jesus and be persecuted. Or to avoid persecution and to avoid the world hating us, you just start presenting a false Jesus. I don't need to go any farther than that. Now here's, the, and we're going to finish with this. How do you respond to persecution? By the way, remember when I said earlier, though God is preparing the church for persecution by teaching us how to respond to our day-to-day hardships. Right? You don't first lift a 100-pound weight. Start, if your arms are not so strong, start with 10 pounds. These responses are how you respond to suffering, whether it's small or large. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. There are mobs coming, but the focus will be Jesus and the church. I'm telling you, mark my words. The mob pictures on the evening news, the focus will be believers, Christians. Ultimately, it's not going to be against issues. It's, fo- it's going to zero in onto the person that is the source of the things they don't like, and that's Jesus himself. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. How did Stephen respond to this raging mob? They were falsely accusing him, and then they began stoning him. But how should we respond to people that maybe might hate us, accuse us, or even persecute us? And I'm not saying because we're mean. I'm saying because we stand with Jesus. There's a difference. There's four things 
four things that we read in Stephen's response. Number one, twice he prayed. When there's real danger and crisis, what's your one response? Everybody say it loud. You pray. You pray. When, when, when you are in real suffering, real persecution, you're out of options. When you're in real crises, you're out of options. The only response is prayer. But you're not just going to wake up one morning and be super godly. What am I saying? Now, listen to me. When you have a, a tough time, pray. I mean, last yesterday at the wedding. So I got, I had my suit and I couldn't find my belt. 30 minutes before I'm due. And, and I, I'm like, I'm like, this super expensive suit, new shirt, and it's, I'm going to look stupid without a belt. And I found myself getting angry. And instead of praying, I called my wife to complain. And she's like, what? Just I'm dealing with a million things. Leave me alone. So I called her back, to, or I texted her just to let her know. And all of a sudden, I cannot tell you how quickly, all of a sudden in my heart, Life sucks. This wedding sucks. Nothing's working out. I'm going to look stupid. I just can't believe it. And I'm telling you, I know what my only response should be. Lord, I pray for my belt. If not, I, I just, I thank you that you're still in control. You still love me. Everything's going to work out. You know what I'm saying? You have to learn to pray. Even before you complain to your spouse or partner or friend. Secondly, he surrenders to the Lord. For he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But every scholar says, oh, he's just copying Jesus. Because what did Jesus do on the cross? Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's copying Jesus, right? And, and notice, Lord Jesus received my spirit. But when Jesus said it, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And scholars have noticed that Jesus prayed to the Father, but Stephen prays to Jesus. What does that mean? Jesus must be God. The Son, the Father, and the Spirit must be God, equal to one another, right? But this wasn't just a prayer. Jesus and Stephen were quoting David from Psalm 31.5, where David said, into your hand I commit my spirit. Why did David say that? Because David was being falsely accused of things that weren't true, and then David was being persecuted against. He tells us, Psalm 31, 13, For I hear the whispering of many, that's gossip, terror on every side as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. 
Verse 18, let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. So David's got people falsely accusing him. David has people plotting against him, gossiping about him, ready to assault him. And how did he respond? Everyone say, into your hands, I commit my spirit. That's how you respond. That's it. Everybody say, that's it. When you face accusation and persecution, David, Jesus, Stephen, what was their response? Lord, I just surrender to you. Instead of striking back at the others. You hear me? I'm not a pacifist. I think that America righteously stopped the Nazis with guns and bombs. Right? I have no problem. I love the police. I love the military. There is clearly there's something called just war. The church is not the state. When the church comes under real persecution, the church does not kill its persecutors. The church says, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's not the same thing. Everybody got that? You're not going to find one. The one time someone picks up a sword was Peter at the Garden of Gethsemane. And what did Jesus say? Peter, put your sword away. And then Peter heals the guy, or Jesus heals the guy that's arresting him falsely. He heals one of the mob. And they got it. Never again in the book of Acts. Or in church history until after the 4th century do you find the church actually fighting back. I'm talking about persecution. I'm not talking about legitimate uh, governance with a state. Do you understand what I'm saying? Peter, you believe and trust. What does that mean in your hands? I commit my spirit. When you're in persecution, when you're in hardship, when you're in crisis, your life, you feel like your life is in their control, right? Anybody ever been in a conflict and you feel like that person's destroying my life? You feel like it's in their control. So what do you do? You say, wait a minute, I'm not under their control. They're throwing stones at me. I'm not under their control. They're falsely lying about me. I'm not under their control. They don't matter. God's in control of my life. Peter said, Peter basically uses this same language as Psalm 31.5, Luke 23.46, and Acts 5.59. Peter says, in times of suffering, let those who suffer according to God's will. What does it say? That's basically the same language to a faithful creator while doing good. Next one. Stephen forgave his persecutors when he prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He's basically repeating Jesus again. Because Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't don't know what they're doing. Forgive who? 
The guys that beating, whipping, spear, crown of thorns, nails, false accusations, betrayal, and on and on. But what does that mean? Do not hold this sin against them. Stephen is basically saying they deserve divine judgment for shedding innocent blood, and I'm asking God that you would not do that. When it says that Stephen saw Jesus, that phrase, son of man, is from Daniel, where Jesus appears as judge, standing at the right hand of God. Why standing and not sitting? Scholars have said the phrase son of man standing most likely has a very particular meaning. That Jesus was standing as the son of man as defender and judge. The real judgment was not the persecutors against Stephen. It wasn't their judgment that matters. It was God's judgment against the persecutors, the murderers. They were the blasphemers. One example, Isaiah 3, 13 to 14. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He what? Stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. Stephen is seeing a courtroom scene. So what does he say? God, wipe them out. What does he say? Don't hold this against them. God as judge would righteously repay these murders. They were shedding innocent blood. But Stephen was saying, forgive them. Withhold your judgment, God. Who was one of the persecutors there? Saul. Not only was Saul there, it's almost certain Saul was the leader of the mob. It said, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And it says Saul approved of his execution. What does that mean? He was the one that said, okay, let's do this. But guess what? Saul was part of the group that Stephen is praying for, right? And scholars have noticed almost every commentary I've read that Saul's conversion, which happens in chapter 9, is probably a direct answer to Stephen's prayer for him. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Them included Saul. Did, was Saul, it, and then it tells you Saul was dragging women into jail and men, destroying houses, murdering people. Did Saul come under judgment for that? No. Saul receives mercy and ends up believing in Jesus. And and notice what Jesus said to Saul. Why are you persecuting whom? Me. The worst thing that happens to Saul is he gets knocked off a horse. 
Do you understand that? By the way, there are two things you do not have an option in. You don't have an option. One is to say, I'm sorry when you've done something wrong. You don't have an option not to say that. Your life will suck if you do not say sorry for what you have done wrong. To your spouse, to your kids, to your coworker. My kids have heard me say sorry to them thousands of times. I thought, I finally decided at some point, I, I've given up on trying to be the perfect dad to my kids. I just can get so grumpy sometimes, sometimes so angry, right? But what my kids will never be able to say is I did not model to them. I, and when I say I'm sorry to my kids, I don't say, I just say, listen, I yelled at you. I shouldn't have said that. Harsh tone of voice. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. And I leave it at that. If there's an issue to discuss, I discuss it later. Because what they need to hear is I am sorry for my part. You do not have an option not to do that. And guess what you also, that's for your own wrongs. Guess what else you don't have an option in? I forgive you. That's for other people's wrongs. You have no option not to forgive. The Bible is so intense about this. Jesus said, if you don't forgive others, you're not going to be forgiven. I could teach that for a while. I, don't, I just don't have time right now. I'm just telling you, if Jesus forgave them, Jesus was the one person that really didn't need to. If Jesus forgave them, how can you not? I didn't say it's easy. Often, I prayed with people. They said, I, just, I prayed with a lady in Thailand that was raped. It's a long story. And she just said, I can't forgive him. I just can't do it. And I said, that's okay. I understand. I said, but can you do one thing? She said, what? Through a translator. She was, speak, was speaking Thai. And I said, can you ask Jesus to help you to forgive him because Jesus already forgave him? She goes, I can, I can ask for help. And the moment she asked for Jesus to help her to forgive him, she started sobbing. I mean, gut-wrenching crying. And then at some point later, I heard her say out of her mouth, which God translated for me, and I forgive you. By the way, her diabetes and blindness that came with it was healed instantly after that. The sickness wasn't just because of food issues. It was because of unforgiveness. Your body actually reacts to unforgiveness. It's very powerful. Okay, la lastly, we're finished with this. To face persecution and martyrdom, you need an eternal perspective, not a temporary perspective. If you only have a temporary perspective, you won't be able to handle it. The last line in the story says, and when he had said this, he what? What does it say? What does it say? He what? That doesn't mean he took a nap. Have you ever noticed in the New Testament how they never say that that saint died, that believer died, how they always say that believer fell asleep? Why? Why won't they just use the word died? Why? Yes, their spirit goes to heaven, and even more than that, not just their spirit going to heaven. What else? Huh? 
their body will be resurrected. All of them is going to live forever. It was a way of saying death was not permanent. Believers are resurrected. Notice what Paul said. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have what? Death for a believer really is a nap. Did you hear me? And let's finish with this. Stephen was lied about. He was falsely accused. He was seized. He was arrested. He was stoned. He was murdered. None of that mattered to Stephen. Did you hear what I just said? Why? Because Stephen's going to be resurrected. He's going to have eternal life with God, eternal life with the angels, and all the other believers and the saints. The worst persecution possible is just like that. And I know we don't think of it like that, but as God renews our minds, we need an eternal perspective, not a temporary perspective. The worst hardship is just a moment of time. I mean the worst hardship is just a moment of time for a believer. Do you know how many times it says this in the Bible? For this... Now, Paul... My God, if you looked at how much Paul suffered... He was stoned multiple times, whipped multiple times, imprisoned multiple times, lied against multiple times, shipwrecked, stolen from, mobs. I mean, his life was just endless persecution and suffering. For this light, momentary affliction. Everybody say light, momentary, affliction. How can Paul say that? Is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, an eternal perspective. So, in what we were looking at with Stephen, anybody have any final thoughts? What we were looking at? Any final thoughts? I kind of took you through his sermon and his stoning. But any final thoughts on what we're looking at? Yeah. Yeah, it actually says, Stephen, if you notice in the text, it said with a loud voice, he said, Father, do not hold this. He yelled it. He wanted them to hear that he was praying for them. Any other final thoughts? Yeah. Every time a New Testament person talks about the Old Testament, including Jesus, they take it word for word literal. And it doesn't mean that they didn't recognize the symbols and the metaphors, right? But when they talked about the history, they took it word for word literal, whether it was Genesis 1 or Exodus or Jonah or on and on. So nowadays, we think we can interpret Scripture better than they did, or better than Jesus did, actually. 
Anyways, Roger, you want to come on up?